Well, we're going to be in a little book called Haggai. It's in there in the Bible. It's almost right near the end of the Old Testament, so you might have to look it up in the index to find it, but uh, you could be looking there. I have one more thing to ask you, and then we're going to jump into God's Word here. But uh, I need somebody who would be interested in signing the the sermon. Uh, If you're fluent in sign, I have a a woman who's indicated that they have somebody who's connected with their family who wants to start coming to church here at South Shores, but we don't have regular signing for the message. And uh, Sharon, who does the signing with the music, said uh, that uh, she is proficient with the music and uh, because she can get it in advance, but the sermon would be a little much. Maybe I talk a little too fast. So if... uh, (laughs) If, if you have those abilities to sign and you say, I would like to do that sometime, we're going to have somebody who's here to sign at the 11 o'clock service today, but there's a whole bunch of people that have difficulty hearing or cannot hear that would love to be part of South Shores, and so if, if you wanted to be able to help me with that, please let me know, and uh, uh, we will see what God wants to do with that, of how people who are, are deaf are going to be able to uh, hear God's word and to join into this family of faith. Well, we're in this Christmas series entitled God With Us, and that little promise from God is all the way through the Bible. It's over and over and over. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. God's constantly reminding, I'm with you. Walk with me. I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for this world. I've got a plan for your church. I've got a plan for your life. Live it out, and uh, I'm with you, so be filled with courage and with faith, not with fear and selfishness. I mean, it's good news, and uh, we've been looking at it. We looked at uh, Moses and... um, and uh, Joshua back around 1500 BC. He's hiding out in the wilderness and God comes to Moses in, in the burning bush and says, go back to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. I'm with you, Moses. Bring them all out here to worship me. And Moses wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, he even begged God, send somebody else. God said, no, Moses, I'm sending you. And so Moses did. And when he got back and brought him out and he went up to Mount Sinai and he got the Ten Commandments, he also received instructions from God, very detailed instructions, of how to build a tabernacle, a portable church, a tent where God could live among his people. And it was a portable tent that was used for about 500 years as a place to meet God. And then about 1,000 B.C., so um, uh, Moses, about 1,500 B.C., 500 years later, 1,000 B.C., God called this little shepherd boy to become the greatest king of Israel. His name was David, and he had a heart after God. He was called a man after God's own heart. And David wanted to build a permanent house for worship in Jerusalem and be a temple that would declare for all to see the glory of God. But God said, that's going to wait a generation. It's not going to be up to you. And so David did the next best thing. He eagerly collected all of the resources that would be needed to build the temple. And then it took his son Solomon seven years to complete. It was made of stone, lined with cedar, and then finished off with gold and silver. And uh, it was gorgeous and opulent and impressive. God lived in the temple. It's where you go to meet God. And God had promised Solomon, if you love me with your whole heart, I will live in the house that you have made with human hands, and my name will be there. But if you go your sinful way, I will move out. I will withdraw my hand of blessing, and you will become a laughingstock of the world. The sad story is that Solomon did not love God with all his heart, and he began to collect trophy wives from all over the world, and he built places for them to worship their own gods, and soon his own heart was uh, twisted, and he was not true to the Lord his God, and he loved many foreign women, and things went south in his life and in the kingdom. God sent a steady stream of holy men to call, call prophets, to call his people back to himself, people like Nathan or Isaiah or Jeremiah. 
but most of the kings who followed Solomon for the next four to five hundred years did evil in God's sight. And most of the people did their own thing and suffered under the wicked leadership. And life went from the best ever to declining, to fading, to bad, to a kingdom being torn in half, to worse, to disaster. 586 B.C., the Babylonians showed up around Jerusalem in force, ransacked the city, stole the treasures out of the temple. Lots of people were killed, and they dragged thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish nobility and intelligentsia and leadership into exile in Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. Well, now you have a crisis. Where do you worship God now that God's house has been destroyed? How do you meet with God now that God has moved out? And Daniel's answer was to be on his knees in prayer multiple times every day from Babylon, facing the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 137.1 captures some of this. The psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. When we thought about home, when we thought about all that we've lost because we just we got doing our own thing instead of following God. And the people had thought that they would, had got taken into exile, but somewhere they got a report that they were going to return quickly uh, to, to Jerusalem. And God used Jeremiah to declare to them in Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, if you were thinking, I'm going to just be here a short time, no use to unpacking, and God comes along and says, build a house and live in it, plant a garden, you think, well, I could get that done in a year and go home. And then God goes on to say, take wives and have sons and daughters. Like, let's see, find a wife, have two kids, that's going to take at least three years. Take a wives for your sons and give your sons and your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. They say, wait, wait a minute, I'm going to be here a long time if I'm going to have uh, children and then grandchildren. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on behalf for it, that city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We've often clung on to that as a promise, and it's probably the brightest thing in the whole book of Jeremiah. It's pretty, uh, a lot of tears in that book. But God's basically saying, the plans you've had for yourself are not my plans, and we're going with mine. And I have a plan that has a future and a hope for you. Just follow me. And it says in verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. They didn't know it, but they were going to be there, some of them, for the rest of their lives. But about 50 years later, God brought about change of leadership in Babylon, and Cyrus the Persian overtook Babylon. The next year, he came out with this surprise edict that he allowed any Jews in captivity to return to their homeland under the leadership of Ezra, and then a second wave later under Nehemiah, and they were to rebuild the temple and the city wall. 
That's why they were let to, uh, allowed to go back to build a temple to God and rebuild the city wall. And most likely among those exiles were the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And they got to Jerusalem and they got started and they, uh, they got busy in the project and they ran into some opposition from their neighbors. <laughs> we're not the first. It's not new. And they got discouraged and they, got pe and they petered out. And year after year went by, and they never got back around to it. And the fact that some of the people were saying, the time isn't yet to the right time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so these people have been set free so they could do a particular work for God. And God wanted them to have a place. Among, he wanted a place among his people. He wanted them to rebuild his house as a reminder, I am with you. He didn't care if it was a tent made out of animal skins in the wilderness or if it was one of the wonders of the world made with stone and cedar and gold and silver, or if it was a little structure reconstructed with pre-used stone and timber, God wanted to be with his people. He still has that desire today to meet with his people. But year after year passed, 18 years went by, and they were chasing their own concerns, and the house of God was in neglect, and they're claiming they don't think it's time yet. And that so irritated God that he inspired a prophet named Haggai to speak out. We have it recorded in this little book. It's only two chapters long. It's actually four journal entries that he made between August and December in the year 520 B.C. And so if you look at the book, basically his first little entry says, rebuild my temple. It's time. And the second one says, work like I'm with you. I am. Overcome discouragement and take courage. His third says, live a righteous life. Just hanging out at the temple isn't going to make you clean. Get right with God. And the fourth, he says, I'm in charge. You're mine. Follow me. So let's jump into this. This little book opens with God sending this message through the prophet Haggai to the governor and the priest and the people who are busily living their own lives and yet they're running into all kinds of frustration and feeling fruitless in their lives. So here's what God says to them. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you're not, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so puts them in a bag with holes. They've been working hard. But they have all kinds of frustration. They have nothing to show for their efforts. They've been busy. They've been making their lives safe and comfortable and focusing on themselves, and it doesn't satisfy. There's no bang for their buck. There's no positive return on their investment. Why? Look what God tells them. Next verse, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's the second time he said consider your ways, which is think about it. You're going the wrong way. Change directions. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, my house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for little and behold, or you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Wow. 
Now, uh, this isn't going probably where you think I'm going. I mean, God has a plan, and God has part of His plan for His people to accomplish, and it will cost something. And if you're so busy with your own plans, your own house, your own agenda, your own career, your own Christmas, your own whatever, that you're number one in your life, and you, you say, God, I'll get around to it when it's convenient to worship you or to serve you or to listen to you, you're going to be frustrated. God's saying right here, he's, he's active in this world, and he's trying to get people's attention, and he's admitting that he's involved in the affairs of, this, of men and women in this world. He's brought drought, and he's brought unproductive land, and he's blown things away that they thought they had in their grasp, and he's trying to get people's attention, trying to get people, even in frustration, if nothing else, to turn to God. That is time to turn to God and put God first. First in our thoughts, first in our priorities, first in our decision-making. We live for His joy. And what frustrated God was that these people, His chosen people, were indifferent to what would please God. They weren't thinking about that. They're only thinking about themselves. Take care of old number one rather than having God as their highest priority. How about you this last week? Did you ever ask yourself, how could I please God today. How can I please God today? It's a great way to get your priorities in line. It's a prayer I think you could pray every day. I try to. God, how do I please you today? God, you're number one. How can I please you today? It's the best gift that you can give God this Christmas. Give him your heart. Put him number one in your life. I mean, Jesus said the same. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And when people, the office of, was also true. When they didn't seek God first, God was, was removing things like rain, like plenty in their crops, like success in their business, like, the, like anything. He was removing the, the feathers from the nest, so to speak, so that they would feel the harshness of the reality, so they would turn to God God comes to these people who have been there. They've been uh, 18 years working on their own agendas, and God brings them some news through Haggai. He says, you live in a paneled house, and my house is in ruins. You're doing nothing about it? It's time. Well, here's the happy news of this story. Haggai came to the leaders and the people with this word from God, and they, the leaders and the people listened, and they responded in faith and in obedience. Within a month, they've changed their ways, and they've started the project once again. And even though it cost them a great deal, they glorified God. They put God first. I mean, this is one of the great success stories of the Bible of people who obeyed and followed God, and he blessed them. Here's how it's recorded in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Oh, I'd love that, that God says that about us in the big record of those people of South Shores. They obeyed my voice. They listened to me, and they followed me. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's actually when I read this. This is what sparked this whole series that we're looking at. I am with you. God said, you don't have to live in fear. Move forward with confidence. Listen to my voice. Just follow me. I'm with you. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Wow. 
That's what I'm praying happens to us, that we hear the word of the Lord, we get our spirit stirred up, inspired, so to speak, and we listen to God's voice, and we follow him in obedience, and we live in his joy. So about a month goes by, and they get working, and God sends another timely message. In chapter 2, work like I am with you, because I am. And what had happened is some of these people who had been children when they'd been taken away into exile in Babylon lived there 50 years and now they come back and they're helping to reposition re stones and they're bringing logs from the hills so that they can put a roof on the place. And they're looking at it and they're going, you know, I can remember as a kid coming here and seeing this glorious temple of Solomon and it was spectacular and now we're building this little shack and it will never match the former glory. It will never be what it was. And they were getting discouraged. And so God sends Haggai to say, work like I am with you, because I am. God's presence helps us overcome discouragement and take courage. And these people are remembering back, and they're thinking, the former glory is gone. We have no hope. And God's basically trying to say to them, it doesn't matter to me whether it's a tent or a huge uh, temple if nobody worships me there, or just a little, a little shack. I'm looking for people who have me in their hearts. God has Haggai tell the people, be strong, all you people of the land declares the Lord, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He would say that to us as a church, I believe. My spirit is in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations will come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God was not primarily concerned about the building he was concerned about people's heart and was he first in their lives. And it was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and the, the rest that have been named. And it was a humble rebuilding. And along came King Herod a few hundred years later and he enlarged it and used about 20,000 slaves to get a lot of the work done. And then that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, shortly after Jesus was here. And there was a pile of rubble there for about 600 years, and in 691, the Muslim Dome of the Rock was built on that spot, and it's still standing there. So God's promise has not yet been fulfilled that uh, the, the uh, house will be greater in its uh, latter days than it was when even Solomon built it. I mean, these people are used to having a holy place for their holy God to live. It's like he was God in a box, like they could say, that's the only spot. And God's trying to say, I'm everywhere, and my spirit is everywhere. And I, he's looking for a people who want to live holy lives that he can dwell in. He wants to be in a right relationship with people. And he wants them to put him first in his life and follow him in obedience. So whether it was a tabernacle or a temple or a little hut or the temple repaired by Herod, all of those were temples made with hands. And God had a better plan. In fact, here's even what he told the prophet Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you will dwell in the land I gave to your fathers and you will be my people 
and I will be your God. God's favorite place to live is in the human heart. God wants to be first in your heart and first in your affections and first in your life. So I'm really not talking about a contribution. <laughs> That's much too easy. I'm talking about making a commitment of giving your whole life to Jesus Christ, of saying my heart is God's home. God is number one in my life. Pleasing God is the most important thing I can do. God, what do you want with me today? The answer is yes, a blank check. God, you can do whatever you want with me now or ever. Pleasing God is the most important thing. What would please God today? And then to do it and to say, my heart is God's home. It's God's temple. In fact, that idea is not original with me. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 3. Did you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. In fact, when Jesus hung on the cross for the sin of the world, including yours and mine, the, Solomon, uh, the temple that had been rebuilt by Herod, where Solomon had started it, was still in Jerusalem, and they still had a holy place where men would gather, and they had a holy of holies where only the high priest would go with a sacrifice one day a year. And he would have a rope tied to his leg, so if the sacrifice was not received by God and he, and he died in there, they could drag his body back out without getting too close as, as to threaten themselves as well. The day that Jesus died on the cross, the curtain covering the Holy of Holies, which prevented everybody else from seeing what was in there, was torn from the top to the bottom. God moved out. It says in Mark 15, 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry. He's hanging on the cross. And he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So this curtain guarding the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest would go, was torn from the top to the bottom. It was torn by God. He's saying, I'm, I'm not going to live there anymore. And God moved out of the temple that day, and he moved into his new digs shortly after that in a dramatic way. In Acts chapter 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they uh, were sitting, and the divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is a brand new phenomenon of people with God's Spirit living inside them. The world couldn't see Him or know Him. They didn't know what was going on. They thought it would be kind of weird that people would say God lives inside of me. The idea of a Savior coming into the world and dying for sin seemed kind of weird too. But you know what? Just because an idea is weird doesn't mean it's not true. It's still the truth that God loves you and came into this world and he died so that you and I could be right with God. And for people who invite him in, he moves into their lives. He lives in their heart. God wants to be in a relationship with men and women, boys and girls. He captivated them. He changes how they think and what he, what's most important to them, how they deal with communication and crisis and tragedy and conflict. And God turns all of them into his family, his body called the church. In fact, in Ephesians 1, it says, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I did not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule or authority or power or dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the body of Jesus Christ. He was born in the manger years ago, but he's born anew in our hearts. He's alive. He's the Lord. Follow his lead. Be filled with his joy. I mean, we're his eyes and his ears, the hands and feet of Christ in this world. We listen for his voice. Then we run to do his bidding. He is the Lord, and we are his body. And God sets priorities, and our passion is to please the Lord. That's what gives us great joy. Haggai 1 says, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins? And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Shall we pray? God, we thank you for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We thank you that your spirit remains in our midst, that we do not have to be people of fear because we are people of faith. I pray that you will continue to work in and through us as your people in this place, that we will follow you and we will know your joy. We will have you as number one in our lives and in our loves and in our church and in our families. And in our, we will place you in such a way that our community can't help but hear and know that those are people who love. They love God intensely, and so they reach out to this world in love. Help us to make a difference, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.